Hey guys, Jonathan Doyle with you once again. Welcome to the Canberra Business Podcast. I know I say this a lot, but this is a good one. This is a really good one. I've just got out of the studio after spending uh, a lot of time with the wonderful Serge Ooh from Wild Bear. And uh, you're going to hear me partway through the interview. I suddenly stop and ask, how long have we been going? Because I looked at the time on the recording and I was like, no, we can't have gone for that long. Like, I didn't feel we'd scratched the surface and we were already one hour in. So either, uh, you know, at least I enjoyed myself and I'm really sure everybody else will too by the time you listen to this interview because there's some gold in here. There's a, there's a real pleasure to meet Serge, uh, a, an intelligent, humble, passionate guy who, especially towards the end of the interview when he sums up some of the key advice he has. I mean, this is a guy that's really focused on bringing other people through, on, on giving back, on contribution to the next generation coming through in business and, and media and creativity. We talk about a lot of stuff here. There's, uh, you know, we, we talk about the sort of philosophy and, and uh, creativity and, and how you manage those things in business. I mean, how do you trade off being creative, uh, trying new things, when you're also dealing with budgets and time constraints, really practical stuff. It's kind of a, an interview where we discuss the interplay between creativity and the practical constraints of business. So, you know, uh, Serge and his partner Michael really built a great business with the original Bear Cage here in Canberra, and now they've expanded by joining up with Wild Fury to create Wild Bear. So there's been a great merger recently because they're building a bigger business with a bigger global footprint. So there's a lot of wisdom here. I just hope you're going to take as much out of it as I did. Uh, Look, housekeeping for me before we begin, please make sure you've subscribed to the podcast wherever you're hearing this today. Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. This stuff is like oxygen to podcasters. So we obviously create this content and we just want to get it out there as widely as possible. But uh, sharing the content, subscribing to it, posting a quick review, taking two or three minutes to do that is a huge help to us. Look, also, I want you to grab the links to this. Would you share it with people? Maybe post it on your social feeds and just get people to have a listen because, you know, it's not often that we get people like Serge with, you know, 27 plus years of business experience sharing it with us completely for free. I mean, you'd have to go to seminars and courses to learn some of the stuff that we just riff on here. So please pay it forward by subscribing, adding comments, or sharing it with people. Uh, Check out the website uh, for Canberra Executive Coaching. Whether you're in the executive space and you want some help in uh, personal or business performance, reach out to us. Staff training. Uh, Sometimes we get executives who've just got a big presentation or a big pitch, and they want some extra help with shaping that content. So I've done live uh, keynotes now for over 400,000 people globally. So if you'd like some personal help with me in shaping a message or looking at business strategy or consultancy, please reach out and check the website. Right, that's it. That's enough about us. Let's listen to Serge U from Wild Bear. I really enjoyed doing this one. Time flew. It was awesome. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Canberra Business Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Doyle. It's really good to have the wonderful Serju from Wild Bear in the studio with us. Serge, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I know you're excited to be with us, and I know that you spend large amounts of your time behind the camera and not behind the microphone, so uh, I really appreciate you coming in. (laughs) 
Tell us a little bit, Wild Fury and Bear Cage merge as production houses back in 2014. Yes. But, but your story begins much earlier than that. But just tell us a little bit before we go to the backstory. Yes. What does Wild Bear do right now? Uh, we're a factual entertainment company, so we produce a lot of international TV documentary, uh, what you'd call documentaries or documentary series, factual series. Uh, we also do a lot of corporate communications. We're working in the museum space at the moment as well, which is really fascinating. So it's a, it's quite a diverse business, and that sort of ranges from natural history, uh, military history, social history, arts, social documentary, you name it, we've probably done it. So what drew you guys into that broad documentary space? Of all the things you could do in production and media these mm -hmm. days, mm -hmm. where's the DNA of the business that drew you guys into that space? We began more or less as a sort of corporate communications company but with aspirations of doing things uh, creatively, I suppose. And that sort of led us to the point where we were, I think we were very good at making short programs. In a sense, they were factual programs. And so uh, we had a, a strong interest in history, strong interest in the arts. And so that sort of led us to producing TV. So when you say you had that strong history, we're going to talk a little bit about how the business begins for you. But the backstory is always interesting. So <laughs> you have an eclectic background. You're yes. born in Geneva. Yes. And uh, you raised a times in the US before you come back to Canberra. Mm. How old were you when you left Geneva? Oh, I must have been about three. Okay. Yeah. Now, are there any unknown perks of Geneva? What's the what's the collective noun for people from Geneva? Well, that would be oh, that would be a really good question. Actually, you should know of all people. I would. I'd well, say, I, I, would, I suppose they'd be Swiss. I would have thought. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we wouldn't have many memories of it. No, very no. few. Very very. You've been back. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of times. Okay. Yeah. So, are there any secret sort of benefits of being born there? Do you get keys to the cities or anything? Ah, uh, I think I could have had uh, citizenship up to a point years ago. I think when I turned eighteen, I had the choice of doing okay. that, but it meant a year of national service and yeah. No, it wasn't okay. for me. All right. So you, you end up, your father's working in the Foreign Service. Yes. And you spend time in the US. Where did you, where did you grow up there? Uh, just outside of DC. So in Virginia, but my dad was working in DC. So it was an amazing time, the sort of mid to late 70s in yeah. the US. Uh, eclectic, really influential in a lot of ways. A uh, very different country to what it is now, yeah, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best memories of the time in the US? Oh, gosh. Uh, it, again, eclectic. It was it was fascinating. I think the circles that my father was moving in were pretty interesting. Yeah. It was, you know, the, it was the height of the Cold War. There was still a lot going on. Did you ever have that feeling that most people probably haven't had? I can remember thinking around the end of the Cold War that, you know, it could actually happen. Oh, Did you yes. Because in the suburbs of Washington, there's not a lot of places to hide. <laughs> no, there isn't. No, duck and cover was never quite going to do it. So, yeah, it was, it's funny looking back at that, isn't it? People no, and I think, it. I mean, it, again, the, the people that we met, the, the circles that we moved in, it was, it was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And for a kid who was incredibly curious and um, what I call, I call myself a bit of an info freak, <laughs> I yeah, like yeah. to sort of just <laughs> devour stuff. And, you uh, still do that? Are yeah, you still I still like do, yes. Multiple yeah. newspapers as yes, you wake yes, up? Yes, yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely, obsessed, yes. Yeah. Although I'm getting... <sighs> very dejected at the moment. Really? There's <laughs> yeah. not a lot of good news around, no, is there? I thought there's got to be a business opportunity for nothing but good news. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It could be fake news. I don't care, but just good news. <laughs> just tell us at the world. But it's funny, on that, you know, I was listening to, you know, people will be familiar with Jordan Peterson. I mean, mm. the, the data's pretty clear that there's essentially no better time, really, to live, in a way. Yes. You know, penicillin, electricity, like yes. as much as it's bad. I mean, just, you know, as a random question, 
I mean, your your exposure to media and news. Mm-hmm. At what level is bad news commoditized? As opposed, do you think we just have a, an attraction to bad news? I think that's what gets the cycle moving. Yeah. I think it really does, and I think it is. It has become the sort of, in a sense, the the mechanism for for what we talk about on a daily basis. I think it's it's a very hard one because I think, well, is good news news really? I'm not sure. You know. I think we need some reassurance that we're not as bad as we might be sometimes led to believe. The other day, I was, um, our office is in Monica, and I'm walking to the car. I'm in a hurry because I'm really yep. important, right? There's this old man in front of me, and here I'm going, why is this old man making me step off the side of the path? I'm really important getting in my car. And there's this lady with him, and I thought it must be his daughter, and it's school holidays, and maybe she's taking him somewhere. And she's on the phone, but she's talking to a boyfriend or someone. She's going, oh, no, I'm just helping this old man, and I watch her. And long story short, she'd just seen this guy carrying heavy shopping bags. So she's carried his bags all the way from Coles in Monica, all around, loads them into his car. I remember sitting in my car going, that's a good news story right there. We're never going to hear. Indeed. So. Not enough of that. There's not enough of that. Were you, um, as a kid born in Geneva, Mm. did you fit in the US? Was that? I think you just adapt. I think you're at, you know, my business partner, Michael Tia, is is an army brat. We're we're very much the same in regards to that. You become very adaptable. There's good and bad things about sort of growing up here, there and everywhere. But I think this idea is that you're forced to become adaptable. And so I think wherever you move to. If you could wave a magic wand, would you have done it differently? No, not at all. Not so that whole peripatetic background, I always love yeah. that word, that, that moving around, yeah. what did it bring you? What do you look into your life these days and see that you I think I feel like a global citizen, if that doesn't sound too corny. Yeah. I think it's the fact is that I've always felt sort of connected to the world. I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm not a very parochial person. I don't think in sort of little boxes. Yeah. And to me, I think that empowered me to sort of have a connection with the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So. Is your father still alive? Yes, he is. Yes, yes. Where is he these days? He's in Canberra now. Okay. Yes, yeah. And you're close after all these Oh, years? yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Very much a sort of influential person in my life. He was? Yes. So absolutely. the question that many people have answered so beautifully, so no pressure, yeah. what do you look into your life in that relationship and see present in your life now? What do you think you've learned from him? Insatiable for knowledge. Yeah. The idea that actually looking outward – and always trying to sort of connect with what's happening globally, I think. Yeah, I think this idea of being aware of, firstly, what's come before, but what's happening now, and how it sort of affects us universally as opposed to your backyard. Yeah. I mean, your backyard's important, but I think this idea of sort of how, how does all this sort of change us, affect us, move us along in a sort of universal capacity, if that so doesn't sound too pretentious. It doesn't, no. <laughs> so what interests you about the world? Why, why not just put down the hatches, focus on... You know, just what's happened. What's because it's the it's fascinating. It is fascinating. I'm blessed to be able to travel the world regularly, meet extraordinary people, talk to amazing people about amazing things that are happening. I suppose it's that electricity. It's is a part of the human race. It's a part of our evolution. It's a part of what we're doing. How we connect with each other. Yeah. I think that constantly, constantly, constantly excites me. I often say to people that our brains are, are literally hardwired for connection, hmm. like at the neural level. Yes. I keep saying to people that our brains that we have now haven't changed much from the brains we had about 200,000 years ago. So our desire for connection, our ability to read facial structures and gestures and try and mm-hmm. read, you know, where it's not always just a question of preference. It's actually something that we almost need to do. We do. We do need to do. It's, it's, it's sort of, a, it is a primal thing. And I think we do sort of connect with each other. But I also think we find out how similar we are. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing. I think you can talk about sort of 
how your environment affects you. Yes, it does, but I think also we're very much the same. Yeah. yeah. And if we're the same, this is just riffing on, you know, uh, what are we, metaphysics, I suppose, really now. What have you observed? What do people want? What do humans want around the world? What do they want? They want to be safe. They want to be secure. They want to be liked or loved. Yeah, I think it's those basic human traits that we all have. Yeah. We all have. I think we're all very similar. And I think you can, you can, I can be in Africa or I can be in the middle of Manhattan. It's the same thing. Yeah. And I think that I, I would, and again, please, I don't want to sound too pretentious, but you know, it's the idea, or sort of philosophical, but the idea that a, the facade is slightly different, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Our game faces are different, but yeah. fundamentally we're the same people. Indeed. I spent a lot of time years ago in the education space and that desire, particularly for young people that we all had as adolescents, that, you know, that desperate desire. Am I okay? Yes. Yes. Um, it'd be nice if we could all just experience that more easily, more often. But, but indeed, um, indeed. But that's the complexity of who we are. <laughs> I don't think that's it. <laughs> so let's I want to jump forward. So you are studying at the University of Canberra. Mm-hmm. So what year was that, roughly? Oh, that would have been about 80... Well, I started in 84, I think, would have been about at 84. At UC? Yeah. He's remarkably well-preserved, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> we'll put some photos in the show notes, but I... Because I, <laughs> I didn't get to UC till I think, about 94, 95, and he's, he's looking very well-preserved. <laughs> so what did you study at UC? I studied professional writing. Yeah. So, again, what I'd, I'd spent a lot of my youth and adolescence making silly little films. And, you know, it's the typical story. I got a Super 8 camera from my dad when I was yeah. eight, and off we went. And I was pretty driven in regards to what I wanted to do. So I'd worked out the sort of mechanics, I mean, the basic, basic mechanics of filmmaking very early. Yeah. But I wanted a, I suppose I wanted an insight into writing. And so I started this course at UC. It was the professional writing, script writing course. Yeah which was dropped uh, after the first semester I started my, my degree. So. Why did they drop it? They just didn't feel it was commercially viable. Was, yeah, uh, perhaps something like that. Yeah. I can't even really remember. But it was kind of a bit of a, ooh, okay, that was a wake-up call. Yeah. So I sort of streamed into creative writing, basically, yeah. so professional writing in a creative sense. Like sort of catch-all term, I'd say. Gosh, that's fascinating. Believe it or not, I actually did creative writing units at UC as well. Yes, yes well, right. Well, we have many things we, in common, Jonathan. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you, you said something about, you know, you get this Super 8 camera from your dad. Yes. I'm interested, like the desire to tell stories, mm-hmm. to capture, mm-hmm. where'd that come from? I really don't know. I mean, I, I'm told I was as a kid I was flipping through books and magazines and sort of inventing sort of narratives. And, yeah. you know, again, I, it's a big cliche. You speak to a lot of filmmakers and it's probably the same answer. Yeah. You know, you get this sort of opportunity, this, I suppose, this mechanism to start being able to tell stories. And I think that's how it sort of flows. Is that, you know, the, the basic human anthropological desire to storytell? Other kids at the same age might have grabbed a guitar. Yes. And written terrible yes. songs. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you write poetry at that age? No, I was hopeless at poetry. In fact, I, poetry, I never connected with poetry, to uh, be honest. No, no. I used to write really awful lyrics for some of the bands that I were in. We're going to publish those in the show notes, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. So I think, you know, if I was ever to be tortured and captured and tortured, I don't think they need waterboarding. They just need to get some old journals <laughs> yes, and go, we're going to exactly. publish Jonathan's- I think we've all got a cupboard full of those. <laughs> Jonathan's poetry. What I was asking, I guess, was that the, the desire to tell stories seems to be very human, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. It does. And I think- we, we kind of all want to know about each other. We all want to examine each other too. We kind of secretly do. We kind of want to know yeah. what you're about. I think that's why we're sitting across a table yeah. and we're talking to each other. Again, I think there is a lot of that in us. And again, giving a device or a mechanism to be able to do that, yeah. 
I think it gives you a momentum to sort of push harder, yeah. I suppose. And I know, look, they, they were awful. I don't even want to go into how awful my early films were. But it was that, that sort of desire to do that. What do you think it takes to tell a story well? Gosh, what a question. What a question. Empathy, an understanding of your subject. I think empathy is a really big thing. I think if you can't listen, if you can't listen and you can't understand where someone's coming from, I don't think you can tell their story. Yeah. Hmm. When have you done it most effectively? Gosh, I hope I have done it at some time effectively. <laughs> well, you're still in business. The market's eventually always right. So you're still, you're still got, you're running a great business. So something's uh, working. When have you done it best or well? Well, I would hope most of the time, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the idea of kind of, you're only as good as the last piece of work. And yeah. if your work isn't any good, I mean, in my business anyway, you know, I hope that I've sort of created a skill set, sort of understanding how to tell those stories. Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm the greatest, but I, yeah. I, I think that there is. Again, a mechanism there to sort of to get that out. I, I would hope I do it on a regular basis. Yeah. I really hope I would. So you're at UC. You you end up in uh, creative writing. You mm. meet Michael there. Yes, yes. What was he doing there? He was doing an economics degree to start with. Okay, yeah. So is this a classic case of we have a, a cerebral numbers man who yes. goes into business with a with a dreamer? Story? Absolutely. Is that what happened? Absolutely. Okay. It's textbook, I think, actually. So you first met there. <laughs> yes, we. What did. did you like about him when you first met him? I loved his uh, confidence. <laughs> I think I liked his confidence. I liked his attitude. I think we were very similar. We had very similar sort of likes and dislikes. Yeah. Uh, I think we connected very quickly. It just felt like a really nice sort of match. Yeah, yeah. So this must have been around the early 90s recession, right? Yes, yes, when we were graduating, yes. Well, I was thinking about that because you are now, you and I are both now at that age where we start to sound kind of like our fathers, right? <laughs> so I'm now saying things like, if you tell young people these days about it, the recession and what it was, they won't believe you. Yes. But I remember that time. I actually was uh, incredibly happy to get a job at a local chemist. Yes. I remember getting that job, and my job was just to unpack stock mm -hmm. and to make fun of the other stuff, and I did both of those really well. <laughs> and But I remember thinking at that time how hard it was to get any kind of work. Absolutely. So you guys look at a recession around you. Mm. You're in a government town. Yes. The smart thing would have been to get a entry-level public service position Indeed. if you were lucky. Yes. You didn't. No, no. So what would you do? I'd say we were mad, honestly. Yeah. And I said we, we thought – well, let's try this ourselves. So we, <laughs> at that time, had a typewriter, <laughs> an answering machine. Electric manual. Yeah, that was an electric one. Electrical. We, were, we were advanced. Yeah. And uh, we set up in a bedroom and basically started to sort of get out there and start talking to people and trying to find some work. Can you even remember when you guys first started talking about building a business? I think it was quite organic, to be honest. Yeah. We both were driven. I don't know. We were both crazy. We were both mad. We were both... I suppose we were risk takers. I think we were, I mean, if you look back at it now, you go, you're insane. You're absolutely but insane. But did Michael come from an entrepreneurial background? He came, uh, well, he is an entrepreneurial guy. He yeah. is, he's very motivated, very, very focused, very outward looking. Yeah. I think we were both risk takers in some ways. Define that for us. A question we often ask, what is, we were just talking about in the previous interview, what is the essence of risk? When you say that word, and look at those choices you made early in the game. Mm. What, is, what does risk mean? I think in probably today's world, risk is financial security. I think it's um, knowing what's going to happen next month. I think those sorts of things. Half the people we knew were at art school, yeah. uh, you know, which was f fabulous. You know, they were just total creative beings and yeah. they were allowed to be. Yeah. 
And then the other half were getting these kind of public service jobs and, yeah. and sort of bunkering down and sort yeah. of starting, you know, buying property and yeah. things like that. And we were sort of stuck in this middle ground where we were these kind of you were creative. Well, you were we were, you know, we, we had creative ambitions, but, we, you know, we also had sort of business ambitions and yeah. this idea, but we sort of, we weren't in either of those camps, so we sort of had to make our own way. So the decision to go out and start looking for work, mm. do you remember that season? Oh, very well. You do? <laughs> very well. So have you ever read a book called Rejection Proof by Jia Jian? No. It's a, I recommend it to everybody. It's mm. a cracker. Yeah. Chinese guy comes, mm. gets a scholarship to maybe Princeton or somewhere, mm-hmm. and when you see him, he's a, he's a pretty heavily built, unspectacular-looking guy. Mm. He had this idea for building roller shoes, mm-hmm. and he was quite entrepreneurial. His uncle made fun of him. He was crushed, and then he mm. just got fascinated by rejection. Mm-hmm. So he decided to try and be rejected once a day for 100 days. And he goes out and gets rejected brilliantly, like just crazy. Mm-hmm. Every day he had to come up with something new, mm-hmm. and it's a brilliant book, and he did a video of every one of them. So I'm fascinated by rejection. You're in a recession. Mm-hmm. You've got no business background. Mm-hmm. You're likely to have a whole bunch of people say, you must be joking. Mm-hmm. What do you remember of that? What do I remember of that? Bleak, bleak days. Bleak really? days. Yeah, Canberra no, winter sort of? Canberra winters. I, mean, I remember we had, I think, where were we? Uh, our office was in Michael's house, and I think we sort of ended up. It was in Emu Ridge in Belcon, and it was a wow. small apartment. We had a post office box in Monica, and we used to sort of drive over to Monica to see if anything had come in the post wow. office box. It was, it was this kind of. You'd open the box, it'd be empty. We'd be calling people. We'd, we'd sort of hear about opportunities. We'd try and sort of make these opportunities happen. Then we started to land. One or two very, very small projects. What was your pitch back then? What was the essence? What, how did you conceptualize what your offering was even then? I think it was this idea that we're bringing creativity to what's a perceived to be a non-creative kind of endeavor. So when we talked about so in those days, it might have been corporate communications was not seen as a, you know, a glamorous creative endeavor. <laughs> is it now? Uh, look, it's I think creative I, writing these days. I think it is. I think it's a fascinating space. I still yeah. do. I really do. It's a really fascinating space. What often is interesting is you're talking to a cynical audience. Exactly. And that's yeah. what I, so educators. So yeah. most of us, when we hear that and you, you're fascinated by corporate comms, yeah. most of us are thinking, oh, we just did another oil spill. How do we tell everybody this never happened? Yes. That's our cynicism. Yes, yes. What fascinates you about the space? Well, I think it's uh, this idea of actually sort of cutting to the message, actually yeah. getting the message out. And I think, but, you know, doing that in a creative way, doing, I mean, creative, I know that sounds a bit amorphous and this idea of sort of what is creativity, but... This idea of sort of talking to people in their own language, to understanding your audience, understanding the message. You know, I'm not into propaganda. Sure. I mean, the idea of actually sort of being effective communications people, I think. So, so educators, I'm genuinely interested. Hmm. My sense is there's been a huge infantilizing of aspects of culture. So mm-hmm. the assumption is how do we boil a message down to the most – you know, simple basic. Most simple yeah. basic. I mean, I often say to people, the Gettysburg Address was 164 words. Yes, but you don't look at that and say that infantilized anybody. Yes, just I'm, I'm genuinely interested. Mm. Many of our politicians do seem to, you know, they talk in ways that we don't talk. No, like have you ever been at a barbecue and gone, well, my fellow Australians yeah. genuinely think that, yeah, or it's not the Aussie way to, you know, we don't. So, wh- what brought about that infantilizing? Do you think? I don't know, and I don't. I, I think it's a perception of what people think people want to hear. Yeah. And I think there's a really big problem, especially, and you, you put it 
quite nicely with the idea of politics now. People relate to their constituents, the, the population, and this idea of, I don't think people read the room anymore, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Know your audience, know how to talk to them. And I think, I mean, I don't want to get into a political debate, but that's that's how Trump succeeded, to yeah. be honest. He read the room. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's been awful for, sure. for everybody involved. But, <laughs> well, it's, but this idea of actually understanding who you're talking to and how you talk to them. Yeah. How does it break down? What happened? I'm curious. I'm just riffing because I don't really know. I think about it sometimes, but I wonder, do we just get busy and we just had minimal time to pay attention to Richard I, I I think we don't pay enough attention, actually. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I don't think we do the diligence, to be honest. But is it, has it been any different, you know, in the past? I'm not sure, to be honest. Yeah, I think the big change is the technological change is that there's so much more content. There so is. Instantly. It's harder to wade through it. It's not curated the way it used to be curated. I think we were... In a sense, whether we like it or not, it was curated when we were fed certain things in certain ways. Yeah. But I think we were probably a little more blessed in regards to who was feeding us that content. Yeah. And I think it's less so now. In the sense that there was a more genuine public interest. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In, yeah. Yes. And of course, we've had media moguls who've pushed yeah. a certain barrow and that sort of thing. That's always been the case time memorial, but I think generally I think we were looked after a little more than we are now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm curious because I've been noticing, you know, if you look at websites like news.com.au at the mm. moment, it's it's gone hard tabloid. It's oh, like, it's, it's clickbait. It's, it's total clickbait. I don't even look at it now. But I, look, yeah. I see it occasionally. I'm like, mm. death, murder, death, murder, death, murder, mm -hmm. you know, awful mm -hmm. behaviour. Mm. Whereas sometimes, I, you know, you read The Atlantic or something mm. and you've still got this rich, long Absolutely. form journalism. Absolutely. Which is, uh, which is sad because I think... The art of journalism is dying in some ways, yeah. and I think there's no opportunities for people to actually practice that skill and that craft anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's limited now. It really is, and it's a it's a sad thing. Yeah, no, it's, I'm just really interested. I think it's the, the polarization stuff's fascinating because I think what we're seeing globally is. Greg Sheridan said this: the death of the centre. Mm -hmm. So it's we're just going to pitch hard yeah. left or left hard or right. right. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to fan tribal stuff. Yeah. Yes. So there's a great look in terms of the work you guys are doing. I think there's a there's a great need for nuanced, empathetic, mm -hmm. rich storytelling. Mm -hmm. So you guys decide to go out on a limb. I just I'm just trying to imagine this season in your life. <laughs> Did you get nervous? No, I think we had the arrogance of youth. To be honest, yeah. I think we were determined. I'm looking back at it now. I think it's mad. What were you determined to do? To be successful in some way, to sort of build. I think we always felt that, again, the industry that we work in, it can be a gig to gig reality. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, and it can, I've known people that have been, you know, out of work for eight, 10 months between gigs, those sorts of things. We never wanted to be that. We wanted to be prolific, uh, prolific in a good way. I didn't think we just didn't yeah. want to make any, just a lot of stuff. We wanted to make great stuff, but a lot of it. We wanted to have a career. We wanted to sort of have this, pathway we could evolve as uh, you know creative people as business people this idea of actually sort of building a business and honing our creative skills honing our business skills this idea that there was a longevity to it it wasn't this kind of smash and grab kind of mentality and i think it was a bit of youthful arrogance i don't think we ever thought no oh, you had your black times you had very dark days but at the same time we kind of had this kind of crazy belief in ourselves that we just had to keep going so you talk about the start being determined mm. and that you had to be successful, however that was going to play out. Mm. I'm always interested in what sustains people over the journey because when mm. you're 21, 25, mm -hmm. 
you, you literally you'll charge the cannons. Yes. But in, uh, unless it's just me projecting my <laughs> 44 years of rich experience <laughs> on the world, you do get to a point where it does get a bit, it does it get harder to sort of go, what keeps you going? Like what what keeps, keeps the fire going after all this time? Belief in what you do, I think. For me, it is anyway. I can't talk for anyone else, but the idea that... I still get up in the morning and I'm jazzed. You know, this is the idea that I want to go to work and I want to do it because I think, again, I'm very blessed. I'm blessed that every day is slightly different, that there's a new challenge, that there's something else, that there's a new project, there's a, something else to explore. And I, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people don't get that opportunity. So I'm yeah. very lucky in that sense. I think that's what keeps me going. So it's a gratitude thing to a degree? It's- it is a gratitude thing. I think I am very lucky, you yeah. know, and I think we, we, with our business, we've been very lucky. We, we, we get to do this every day, which is just yeah. fascinating, you know, and it's, it's fun. I was saying to Glenn Keyes that for most of human history, you never got a choice. Like Indeed. Industrial Revolution, right? You, until 1760, hmm. and even then you went down the same mine as your father. <laughs> yes, I exactly. Mean, but before that... Or the same we, factory, yeah. Yeah, we mm. got surnames like Cooper because you made barrels for yes. 500 years. Yes. So, yeah, I think we can often um, pinch ourselves that we get to do I, Absolutely, stuff. I, Absolutely. I think we are living in a very lucky age in some ways. You know? So we had Richard Watkins last week from Ben Spoke, mm-hmm. and one of his key bits of information, advice. How were the, the samples, end. by the way? Magnificent. Yeah, yeah. He actually brought them. Did I say that on the interview yet? <laughs> I don't know. No one's heard it yet. He hasn't published that one. No. He did. God bless him. He did. <laughs> he did. He brought, he brought a uh, four pack of crankshaft. <laughs> Could so, be. So uh, yeah, I try and just select my guests really carefully. You know? <laughs> so, I've got people from Moet coming in next week. Nice. Um, so yeah, we were just saying with, you know, people who, you know, historically never got to choose what they do. Mm-hmm. You know? and, mm-hmm. uh, but what Richard was saying was, one of the crucial things is to love what you do. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say, yes, I subscribe to that. But mm-hmm. for people listening, starting out, how imperative is it, do you think, to go um, – the reason I'm asking this is the tension between hobbies and yes. businesses. Yes. Somebody who's listening to this going, well, I'm really passionate about quilting, so I'm yes. going to start a global quilting empire. Yeah. <laughs> different things. Yes. Should you do what you love? Is How do you risk taking an interest and making it a business? If you're willing to give up things perhaps that – you won't have on that journey and you believe in it, why not? Why not take the chance? I subscribe to that. That's yeah. my that's my personal kind of perspective. I, I think it's you can play it safe and that's great and yeah. that, that works for a lot of people. But for me, it doesn't. I think you have to take the risks. Is there a reward? Well, maybe, maybe not. But I think the idea is that you've got to – it's, again, the old cliche, life's too short. I think, honestly, I think um, I've always believed that, that you just have to – Always been a risk taker, always been interested in sort of looking out, yeah. looking forward. This idea of, hey, what's over there? Yeah. And look, if that means I can't drive a Ferrari or I can't have a you know, six-bedroom house or I can't do this, that's fine with me. I often talk about that French proverb that the goal of life isn't to be the richest person in the graveyard. Yes. And uh, – I was joking with Michelle Melbourne, who was mm-hmm. on the show about, yeah, you know. Michelle's fantastic. She's yeah, cool, and yeah. she, she's like, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the best things is, um, yeah, she talks about is we, we joked about buying the next yacht. You yes. Know? Yeah, yeah. If the purpose of business is fundamentally buying the next yacht, yeah. you can only sail on one at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Did that drive you? Was there a sense early on that you wanted to be financially successful? Does that Was that a drive? Again, it wasn't money, I think. It was about sort of quality and about, you know, being good being good at what you did yeah and i think and again that's a that's a personal perspective i'm not someone that sort of flouts that yeah. in regards to that but it's, it's just an inward thing this idea of sort of being good at what you do and i think if you are successful in what you do i think those things come come from that in time yeah did you have a time early in that phase where you thought 
this isn't going to work? Did oh, you have a moment? Probably about 70, 80 times. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what's your default? <laughs> People go to uh, anxiety or depression or <laughs> rabbit in the headlights or they go for a bottle of Jack Daniels. Back there or all of the above. All of the above, really. Within 24 hours. Yeah. What did you do? Early on, what's your default under pressure back then? Did you freak out? Did you do you stress? Did you get depressed? What's your uh, default even these days? Step back, yeah. breathe. That's really that's it. So you don't get. I mean, are you like a duck <clears throat> on the water? So you're calm. Yeah. In the office, but the absolutely. legs are going underneath. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That would be it, I think. And look, you have your own personal demons. You have to sort of deal with those issues. You have to sort of go with those. The complexities of those problems can be very different, problem to problem. Yeah. I think it's just step back, breathe, examine, work, work out a way through and keep going. And now, I've asked this to most people, hmm. do you wake up sometimes at 2 a.m. staring at the ceiling going, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You do? Yeah, on a weekly basis. <laughs> do you get back to sleep? Yeah. Can yeah. you write a book about how you do that? <laughs> no, I can't. I should no, have I can't, but 2 it's a- this morning. Look, I think that's part of the game. That's part of how it works. The day I'm sort of not feeling scared, I I, I sort of talk about this a lot with the idea of every job, every project, you got to feel scared. you got to feel out of your depth. you got to feel like you're pushing the envelope. You've got to feel that because the day I don't is the day I should quit, honestly. That's part of my motivator. There's a heap in that. Mm. It'd be interesting if we could get Charles Darwin in the room to say, (laughs) is there a biological advantage to placing ourselves in situations of potential danger. Mm-hmm. 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 So we had the- I understand. Op- yeah. Because <laughs> it is easy to just kind of go, we've made a successful widget. Let's just yes. keep making the Absolutely. same successful Absolutely. widget. So why not do that? Why not make the same widget? Because that's not what motivates me. I don't, again, if it was a sort of the idea that I'd be pretty bored, to be honest. Do yeah. you get bored? On occasion, yeah. but, but rarely. What bores you? What bores me? Uh, the same thing. Just repetition. The same thing, repetition, doing novelty. doing the same thing again. I think exactly what you talked about, making the same widget yeah. and going, that'll do. I think that's that bores the hell out of me, to be honest. So where did the name Bear Cage come from originally? Oh, it came from, we when we started, again, we, were t- we went for our first grant application. It was a kind of $500 grant or something. We needed to have this entity name and we were kind of freaking out and it was sort of 1 a.m. and the thing was due at 9 a.m. Yeah. We were going through our record collection. Record it's collection like in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And it was a record collection in those days. You yeah, know, those vinyl, vinyl things, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. We sort of pulled out an old uh, strength. We were fans of the Stranglers. Yeah, yeah. The Stranglers. And we were looking, you know, we were just looking on song titles and Bear Cage was one of them and we just went, that'll do. We'll put it on. <laughs> we'll think of something else in a week's time. <laughs> And it went in and that just kind of stuck. That oh, was it. Because wow. yeah. I was thinking before I had the interview, I thought, I wonder if it was like, you know, because it was really tough at the start. It was like going into the bear cage, you know. That sounds much better sounds as a much backstory. Better. <laughs> See, I'm an empathetic Jonathan, storyteller. Can you, can you write the that's bio? Right. That's right. I'll do yeah. that. Um, so you, you name it bear cage. What was your first big win? First big win was a, a job with health, okay. the Department of Federal Department of Health. And it was a big $20,000 job. And it was- wow. That was the turn. 
Oh, yeah. That was when it turned, yeah. Do you remember when you when you found out you got it? Yeah, we were ecstatic, absolutely ecstatic. Yeah. We couldn't believe it. It was like winning the lottery. It was like, oh, my God, imagine what we can do with $20,000. We, we can, we can really, oh, it's a, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. It was just insane. Nowadays, you can pay the electricity bill for <laughs> yes. a month. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. right. <laughs> okay, so on the day, the business goes forward. Tell us about the merger with Wild Fury in 2014. Okay. What, um, take us through that. So Michael Tier and I had had had... Bear Cage for, oh my gosh, we must be close to 20-something years yeah. we've been doing it. And I think, and you know a lot about business there, Jonathan, the idea is you do hit a ceiling in your space yeah. and there's different ways to grow and one of them was to merge. And we'd known the principles of Wild Fury, yeah. who we were merging with uh, for a while. We talked a lot about this. They worked in complementary spaces to what we did. Okay. And I think what we always thought about was, Diversity in business. We never wanted to just do one thing. We did a lot of things yeah. in the space of our industry, I suppose. And the idea that we wanted to diversify that next step. Yeah. And merging with Veronica Fury and Bettina Dalton, who are two mavericks in themselves in the industry, actually broadened the scope of what we could do. So it took yeah. us to the next level. And I think it um, opened up things like natural history, which we'd never done before. So wildlife. Yeah. Those sorts of things opened an enormous market for us there. Two very complimentary businesses. What were you nervous about? Hmm. No, I was ready. You ready? We were ready. Yeah, I think honestly. So why grow? Why grow? Because, again, it's this idea of momentum. In our space as well, in recent history, if you don't grow, you die. Okay. I think that's really what it's about. And I think gone are the days of the niche space in what we do. And I don't. we were never niche in, in that way, but... I think you grow or you die, really, or yeah. you get acquired or wh- whatever happens there. So I think we wanted to be, wanted to take it to the next level. We wanted to be bigger. We wanted to be broader, more diverse. We wanted to have a footprint in a larger sort of global market. That's really where it came from. What excites you about that, about that growth? Well, it, it, it can be as big as you want it to be in a lot of ways. And I think this idea that we've sort of gone, we went from as Bearcage producing maybe 20 hours of television a year, we now produce about 118 hours. Wow. So. And just on that, I mean, with a highly disrupted TV mm-hmm. market, mm-hmm. my brother is one of the top guys at Channel 9 in Sydney. Yes. He's been TV guy for years. Yes. And, you know, it's like the old Don't Mention the War episode of Faulty Towers mm. every Christmas. It's yes. like I'm fascinated by because he's he's still in that game and he's mm. still the big Money spinners, a state of origin, yes. advertising revenues, yes. all that sort of stuff. Yes. But in such a disruptive market, mm-hmm. like, you know, at home in my house now, we'll have Foxtel, we'll have Netflix, mm-hmm. we'll have uh, free Xbox, air. free yep. to wear. Mm-hmm. We're very good parents. We only let them watch 16 hours a day. And so far, it's <laughs> it's working for everybody. So in terms of producing, you say producing 120 hours of TV content. Yep. What just helps understand that what's happening in that bigger space of... That bigger space, yes, the industry is just... Fracturing, actually. It historically would be one of the biggest shakeups in the industry. Historically, I would say, yeah. since TV began. But I suppose our point of view is that content is content and the delivery mechan- mechanism may change. So yeah, it may be good. regards to Netflix or free to wear or Foxtel, whatever. Yeah. And we work, we're working for all of those people. We work for cable channels around the world. We work for free to wear networks. We, we work for Foxtel. We work for, well, I'm just about to start a project with Netflix. Yeah. You know, the idea is that it content is content. Yeah, it's good. Okay. You know? So the platform 
in some ways it might condition the content, but really great content's great content. I would hope so. I really would hope so. And I think that's been proven. Yeah. I think the idea that Netflix can say, well, we're actually going to invest in really good content. Yeah. You know, you see a shift from whether it's traditional cable or yeah. free-to-air at one point, traditional cable to Netflix. I mean, the content, the bar is high. It's been high for a long time, yeah. but that's been across free-to-air cable and Netflix. But the idea is where are we shifting? I think the idea that we don't have appointment television, I think, is really, really important. I think appointment I th- television is you know it's uh, you've got to be there at five o'clock. Absolutely, because it's at five absolutely. O'clock. I think now you can watch anything you want, whenever you want. It's interesting. It's fascinating. I'm in the car with my daughter, and she says, "I want to hear this now." Yeah. I put that song on. You know, I was the guy who would, when I was 13, would go to the import record shop, place an order <laughs> used for to be an, in Civic. Yes, to place an order for wow. an album that I just read a line about in a six month old yeah. English music press thing and wait eight weeks for it but to what, arrive. Didn't you appreciate it though? I, yes, it did. It's a different world, you know, and that's uh, that's fine. Okay, but- we need to apply a nostalgia filter now. So you know, <laughs> I've, got a, I've got an app on my computer and it glows red every time that Serge and I <laughs> Sorry, start. I don't want to talk. Because <laughs> I can remember with Monkey Magic on, you know, five yes, o'clock ABC yes, every absolutely. afternoon. Yeah. Be like, this thermonuclear oil, it can wait for 15 minutes. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so I think this idea that you can watch what you want to watch yeah. when you want to watch it. So the idea is that you're into sports documentaries or history documentaries yeah. or superhero films. You know, the idea is that yeah. you can watch them when you want. And there's just such great content. Like I think one of the big ones for me was Chef's Table, which I came to really mm-hmm. late. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that much about Netflix, but my daughter and I, who's now 10, yes. we just fell in love with it. Yes, yeah. And I, in yeah. terms of, I'm a neophyte to this in terms of your background, but mm. just rich, interesting people and Absolutely. fascinating storytelling. Absolutely. And I was like, wow. Absolutely. So what makes great content? Gosh, you could put me on the spot there. Uh, is it in the eye of the beholder or are there certain I think maybe it is a bit in the eye of the beholder. I think I think you know, it's interesting. I look at I scan the audiences that we talk to and they're all very, very different. Yeah. And some people are looking for very traditional things, some people are looking for very insightful things, some people are looking for cutting edge interpretations of things. I think that's the beauty of where where we are now. Yeah. I think that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I think Jonathan, you might want something. He might want something. She might want something. And we talk to a lot of different audiences in different ways. So I'm not sure what good content means anymore. Yeah. You know, I think it used to be great production values, awesome acting, uh, you know, yeah. access, those sorts of things. I think it's a very different thing. Very fragmented. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard of a movie called Integrate Silence. No. It's, it's great backstory. I'm a bit of an introvert by nature, believe it or not. I like quiet. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and it's a movie about a monastery in Germany called the Grand Chartreuse. Mm-hmm. It's a the monastery is over a thousand years old. Mm-hmm. And the producer went to the abbot. This is a true story, and said, "We'd love to do a documentary about your life here." Mm-hmm. So the abbot goes quiet, thinks for a few minutes, looks up at him, and says, "We're not ready. Could you come back in twenty years?" Twenty years later, he, he comes, comes back, back and films it. Yeah. Now, if people remember Tom Hanks in uh, in Castaway. It's like you know, three hour movie. Mm-hmm. With, you know, there's like silence for long periods of time. So in Integrate Silence, there is no dialogue really in the whole film. Mm-hmm. But there's one moment where they're on, in the snow and they laugh. So you've got dead silence for two and a half. It always struck me as... And it's this magic moment of, yes. Yeah, well, it's just, yeah, I mean, in terms of great storytelling mm. and when, when, when an element's taken away mm-hmm. and then the other ones are brought to the front. And I'm just interested in my background... In my second postgraduate work, we looked at things called the transcendentals, mm-hmm. um, which you know Aristotle was big on. 
they're called transcendentals because they transcend individual occurrences of them. Yes. So truth, beauty, and goodness. So yes. if you can make things that are true, things that are beautiful, or things that pitch to the that's good. They'll sell, but then again, you know, there seems to be a great obsession with murder documentaries and everything else. So let's just, we'll get the editors to take that part out. So, But you're right. Three absolute key elements. But when I look at your work, when I go through your website and mm. I encourage people to do that, mm. there's not a huge fascination with, you know, awful topics from what I can tell. There's a lot of interesting mm. historical pieces mm-hmm. and great stuff mm-hmm. around different aspects of national history. Mm-hmm. Like, have you guys turned any work down or do you tend to gravitate towards particular stories i think we've been very lucky that we can actually sort of uh, first of all we can pitch a lot of ideas to people so yeah. we're not approached by people to say make this and oh, like really? that so you guys we actually pitch a lot of our work so yeah. we sort of initiate our own projects we sort of conceptually development develop them and then we actually take them to market oh, that's brilliant okay yeah, yeah so yeah. we're actually in some ways, masters of our destiny. Well, I've got to ask you on that. So I'm fascinated. So you're mm. all sitting in a room mm. and somebody's like, we've got a great idea for this. Mm-hmm. Where is the intersection point between I've got a pet project that I'm interested mm-hmm. in and something that's commercially viable? Okay. How do you resolve that tension? Well, I like that tension and I like that tension about the sort of, this is what I talk about, the sort of commercial and creative tension. Yeah. I think I love the parameters of the business. Yeah. I love the parameters of an audience a market, those sorts of ideas, and they actually do drive creative ideas. There, there is a million great ideas. There always yeah. is. You know, we can sit in, you and I could sit in this room and within half an hour probably have 30, 40 pretty decent ideas yeah. humming. But are they marketable? Are they commercially viable? And I think that's really interesting, that tension. And I think that's what I love about this business, the sort of tension between commerce and creativity. So you've described it, mm. but what I'm interested in, all the business owners listening, mm. we often talk about opportunity. A lot of guests have talked about Successful business is the ability to perceive opportunity where others don't. Yes. So you've described that tension point, mm. but how do you resolve it? Is this, how do you this resolve is part it? of your genius? The but- market determines it, I think, a lot of the time. So you could take, we have a, a great dialogue with the market. We talk to the market constantly. We're in the market constantly. And the idea is that they're feeding back on this works, this doesn't work, more of this, less of this, more of this, less of this. And there's been obvious trends over the years in regards to, you know, World War II's hot this year, yeah. you know, Burner Mysteries are hot, yeah. you know, you know, the idea. And you sort of, you have and flow with that, with that market. The market is the driver in a lot of ways. So that sort of takes that out of your hands in a lot of ways. You is know, that you can, hard for you as somebody that cares about stories and creativity? No, because you find stories within that market. Within that you market. always do. Mm. You always do. And I think that's what, yeah. And I think you work in the space that you kind of... You understand, you, you have some sort of capabilities in, you have some experience in, and you can sort of push that envelope within that space. But you know, again, we're lucky because we get to work in so many different spaces. We're not just the yeah. history guys yeah. or the natural history guys. We, we do everything. So the idea that the relationship that we have, you know, in China, it's fascinating. To, we do a lot of work in China. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating to see the market evolve there yeah. because they're talking just a skewed language, you know, the idea of, of what you're making for China, it's just skewed slightly differently. As in the, just what they desire as a culture? Yes, kind of- indeed. Absolutely. And it's really fascinating to sort of to sort of play in that bond and to sort of do that. I'm not being flippant. I'm mm. genuinely not. But I was always fascinated by the Japanese Hello Kitty thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> I was like what, what is that? Like, how does that emerge in a culture that, that this is kind of, this is a thing? Like, <laughs> so I guess it's probably interesting party work. You get to see these different cultures Absolutely. It's, it's great. And, it, and again, you have these amazing kind of, experiences we can do work in china that's not very high profiling you can get 150 to 200 million viewers that's something you can't even 
dream of in the West. Wow. You know, and then and that's not a high-profile gig. You know, that's something that was good and we did what we did, but, you know, it got 150 to 200 million viewers, you know, and I think that's fascinating. It doesn't that's, look too bad on the website when you well, put those numbers Yeah, yeah, it's not, I'm sorry, I'm not talking about it in the sense of, you know, we yeah. got more numbers than you. You yeah. know, th this idea is it's just kind of a different, yeah. again, it's a different space. And, you know, we're, again, like I can't sort of explain how fascinating this kind of whole yeah. journey is because you go from, from here to there and here to there and here to there and it's, it's always different. One of the guys I ride with here in Canberra, he rides, he's with Foreign Affairs here, a great guy, Paul, and he, uh, a very, very high-level rider, and he rides with the Japanese cycling team. Yes. So yeah. he just flies back and forward. But he just emailed us all a few months ago going, oh, he goes, I'm on this documentary, you had to watch it online, <laughs> but basically he's a, he's a six-foot-four white guy yep. who just rides his bike around Japan talking to farmers. And apparently this That's is huge. That's great. That's great. And Sounds see, great. And it's just like he's just there looking at their crops and talking <laughs> to them. I'm going, it's just incongruous, this six foot two white cyclist. <laughs> I love that. Just rolls over the hill. Yeah. So And says, G'day. And says, <laughs> you know, g'day and uh off he goes from there. So well, that's great. That there's just yeah. such a diverse need for content. It, 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 there is, there is. So the parts that you love about it, some of the parts you really enjoy about your work around problem solving, mm. this interplay between budget and schedule. So mm. I would find this enormously stressful and mm. would break things. <laughs> so my father was in construction. He's dead now, but he used to have this. Gantt charts. Well, no, he had, he had this uh, this cartoon, and it was like the architect, and it was the architect's perception of himself and in the eyes of the client, and the architect's perception of himself is he's got this big sack full of money, just throwing it out and throwing it around the place. So, obviously, when it comes to budget, some people mm -hmm. are like, you know, obviously some creative types were mm -hmm. just like, look at all this money. And, mm -hmm. and then you've got schedule, mm -hmm. problem solving. Mm -hmm. What do you love about problem solving? I like the parameters around problem solving. I like to have a have a box to work within. And I think that's what I was sort of saying earlier, this idea of creativity and commerce, this idea of sort of bringing those two together. And yeah. it sort of forces you to be creative within a context. And I think that's really, really important. So how do I answer that question? Yeah, mm. I'm interested. Mm. Let me pin you just on that. Mm. The, the interplay, the, the intersection of creativity and commerce, mm. we don't, probably think about those very often no we don't because the, the, the financial is conditioning the creative or in a sense it's, it absolutely is i mean it without the financial there is no creative yeah. <laughs> in my business yeah it might be different for a visual artist who can sit in a back room and paint you know yeah. three hours a day that's a different story but in my business there is no creative without commerce and i think that's sort of what underpins the whole thing it is the film and tv business you know yeah. it's called a business for a reason because it's based on those constraints and so I think that creative industries, it can be, and I'm not being derogatory here, I think it's, you know, it can be a bit floppy. It can be yeah. sort of talk a lot and muse a lot and think think a lot. Personally, for me, I like the idea of the constraints of time and money and the time and money sort of forces you to be creative. I think that's kind of the mother of invention in my world, you know, this, this idea of you're forced to use the parameters you've got. So do you think that those enforced parameters... <laughs> lead to more creativity for me they do i can't talk for other people but for me they do i know i know a lot of people in the business that complain quite a lot about it i want more i need more time i need more 
more money, more people, more things, you know, that a, a lot of people do talk about that. And that's so what, I'm wondering, like, if I look back at those great Cecil B. DeMille epics, right? <laughs> I mean, they must have been at their time. I mean, for you and I, for, for our generation, it would have been films like Titanic. Yes, yes. But I reckon going back to those original ones, they would have been absolutely culture-breaking. Absolutely. To, to, to see as a visual. Absolutely. Even now, we watched Ten Commandments with my kids a while yeah. back. Is your sense that if you just had unlimited resource, that the creative process would be retarded or it would drag out indefinitely? It or? just would drag out. And then again, this is purely subjective. This is, yeah. I'm talking about my perspective. It's, it would, it would go forever. I'd, I'd fiddle and fuddle. Build a bigger and, pyramid. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. just keep going. And I think there has to be a point where you say, that's it. It's out. It's gone. The, the baby's born and it's out in the world. So how do you make decisions in that environment? I think, again, money and time make those decisions for you. You have set some, set amount of time. The but, idea that Something has to be delivered on this budget at this time for this purpose. It has to be done. But what are you bringing to that? Because a lot of people in creative production businesses have the same problem. Mm -hmm. You guys are still in business mm -hmm. and you're growing. Mm -hmm. You've got to be bringing something to that decision-making moment mm -hmm. that's working. I think some back-end processes, you know, ways of doing things, I think that have been sort of evolved and re-engineered and re-engineered and re-engineered. The idea is you've got a sort of mechanism that you can put that idea into and then have something produced. The idea that you sort of have a workflow, you have you have ways of doing things, you have sort of, you know, process to me is really important in terms of creativity. I, mean, I talk to a lot of writers and a lot of writers say, you know, I get up at 5 a.m. and I write from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. Then I break and I come back for an hour. Then I break and, I'm not, and I don't get back to the typewriter or the computer mm. until that time tomorrow morning. This idea of... It's interesting, you talk to some songwriters and songwriters say, oh, I have to sit, I have to sort of block out my day and I have to go and write yeah. to be creative. Some people say I'm on a bus and the idea comes and I've just got to grab a guitar. So is, you are know? you saying that having some form of discipline or structure around mm. the creative process, I'm, I'm trying to think of listeners in terms of their business journey mm. too, like what are your filters? I mean, you, at one level you're just saying, well, it's just time and it's just budget. I yeah. get that. But, yeah. but you're still I'm making- I'm not being flippant. No, not yeah, at all. Yeah, but yeah. you're still making day-to-day, moment-to-moment decisions. Yes, yeah. How do you, what's your filter? How do you do it in the moment? I, again, being mindful, I think, is, yeah. is one thing. I think absolutely being mindful. Being in the, in the process is really, really important. I think you're thinking about how each decision affects what you're doing right now. It's a funny business, ours. You know, we sort of talk about it's almost like a footy season. You know, yeah. a project is like a footy season. You don't go out hard on your first game. You know, the first week of production, you don't give everything yeah. and then sort of fall over three weeks in and not be able to sort of finish the season. You've got to pace yourself. Yeah. You've got to make the right decisions at the right times. You've got to think about what early decisions, how they're going to impact later decisions. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a complex, complex beast. I mean, I often think, to digress for a moment, it's insane what we do. The complexity of what yeah. I do as a job is insane. I sort of come to that ephemeral thing we might talk about a bit later on, but this idea of so much effort, so much thought, so much industry is put into these things that are very ephemeral. Mm. When you look at it, it's absurd, if you like. You come back and say, why did you do all that for that? It goes to air, it's gone, and we're talking about the next thing tomorrow. You know, this idea that we sort of have to think about how how all these things fit into this space. Am I making any sense at you all, Jonathan? Are, my friend. <laughs> what I'm trying to ask you, what I'm, I'm interested, mm. this mm. occurred to me in your notes and what you just said then. Mm. I want to talk to you about how you've communicated that in this business you create a piece of work mm -hmm. 
and then it's gone to the client or mm-hmm. it's gone and you have to retool and move on very fast. Yes, yes. So what I'm curious about and what I thought about was, you know, the Sistine Chapel. Mm-hmm. It's not as if he just knocks it up and goes, no. right, next chapel. <laughs> no. But how do you create something so visually beautiful that you're very proud of mm-hmm. and just next? You have to learn to do that. You have to learn. I think it's something that I talk about with a lot of young practitioners who are very interested. They put their heart and soul into everything, as you should. I really do believe that you should inject yourself into it, but it shouldn't be the definition of you. The artwork should not be the definition of you because it will kill you. Because what happens, it goes out into the world and everyone's talking about it for 24 hours and then they're talking about something else 24 hours later. This idea that what we do is incredibly from The Sistine Chapel is still there. What we do vanishes. It's almost like a Facebook feed nowadays. So I'm fascinated by that because how do you bring yourself to that? How do you bring – because you're putting a lot of work into this, not just systems and processes and work, but – Passion and energy yes, and, and creativity and insight. Yeah, How do you? The more I listen to you, it's more like there's these two aspects of you. Like you've got mm. the creative and the pragmatic. Creative mm. and the pragmatic. Do you kill off part of yourself when you just go next project? That's done. You have to. You have to. In a sense, it's. I mean, I, I think of visual artists. I know a fair few visual artists, and the idea is they paint these incredible works, and they get put up in a gallery. Someone buys them, and they disappear, and they're gone. And they're not yours anymore. Yeah. You don't have that connection with that piece of art anymore. So you have to learn to kind of, it has to build you, it has to nurture you, it has to give you something, but you have to be able to let it go and you have to be able to move on to the next one. Otherwise, you'd be paralyzed. You, you, could, not, you could not move to the next project. Yeah. Can I just check, how long have we been talking? Oh, sorry. I don't know. How long have we been We've been going an hour. An hour, I don't know. What's, well, this what is, is an hour, but it okay, feels well. like, I don't know, it feels like it's been about 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it feels like to me, yeah. So I hope I, I hope <laughs> press the right buttons, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm just, we normally keep them to about an hour, but I'm enjoying myself here, so. I can go anytime you <laughs> want right, to. That's right. No, I'm fascinated. This is great. So let me ask you, uh, we often talk about what you don't love, and this comes up for almost everybody, which is the HR question. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of Dante's circles of hell involved a HR <laughs> office. You mentioned that we it's a relatively small town here yes. still. Yes, And not only is there a small talent pool, I'm curious, do you notice with millennials and people coming through, what are your takes on that? We've had other people that think they're wonderful and Mm -hmm. they're dynamic and Mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. What's your take on the talent pool and who's coming through? It's a different world to when I began, and that's fine. That's a part of this evolution we talked about earlier, this idea of how we sort of grow as a society, and I think uh, it's a different world. I think people are – I can only talk about it from what I try to – I suppose, develop for them more than anything else. Yeah. I can't talk about them per se because they have a different perspective yeah. and I don't want to in, impose my old man <laughs> back in my day. <laughs> Things used to be really tough. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, People just need to just Google <coughs> the Monty Python, um, <laughs> the, the box, famous Monty the Python uh, s- uh, shoe box. skit. Was it the shoe box? Yeah. Mm. They mm. won't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this idea that all I try to do is, and I, and I know Millennials are not interested in sort of, you know, working over five years in the same company sure. or anything like that and want to have a diverse career path and do different things. All I try and do is set up some sort of, I suppose, pathway through our business so that while they are with us, there's some sort of pathway that they can evolve, they can develop, they can have opportunities. So if they stay, they stay. And we've been very lucky. We've had a lot of people that have been 10 plus years in the company with us and still with us some 
close to 20. That's fabulous. But I understand everyone has their own journey and that's what they have to do. So I try and at least have a pathway for them within the company. So while they're here, that's what I can well, give them. Well, it's interesting listening to you. It sounds quite similar to what we were just discussing, which is the letting go of the project. Mm-hmm. Is yes. that you invest in it, you invest in it, you invest in it, you give it what you can and then yes. you just let it go. And it's yes. almost a little bit similar with the, the pathway for young staff through Absol- a creative absolute, business. Absolutely it is. And it is, you know, and we don't, they're different sort of attractors that people have. They want to live in bigger cities. They want to, you know, mm. that you're 21, you want to. But our weather. <laughs> I mean, look outside. It's, I know. <laughs> look past that polar bear. And yeah, exactly. Look at beautiful yeah. weather. So, no, but you know, there's different. There's different um, motivation for different people. I think. But all, as I said, all I can do is actually sort of create some sort of some pathway within what we do. I wanted to ask you, with staff and young and staff in general, yeah. there's the idea that this is our business. We founded this business. Our staff must be as passionate about it as we are. Mm-hmm. And my take from listening to so many people is that you can't realistically expect that of people. You no. can get them close, yes. close-ish. Yes. How do you lead and encourage your people? How do you? What do you? What are the, some of the things that you think work with helping people to see your vision and, and work effectively? Well, I hope that people are attracted to what we do, yeah. our values. I mean, we do have company values. You know, we talk about. I won't sprout them here, yeah. but you know, there are. A set of values. There's a, there's a certain culture. There's define that for us. What is that for you guys? Culture. Well, I think we're, we're a very flat organisation. Yeah. We're, we're not about sort of hierarchies. We're yeah. I'd I'd say that's one part of it. I think the idea that we're very committed to what we do. Uh, we're not cynical about it. Yeah. I think definitely. As I said, I can't I can't sort of look on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very hard for me to. What's the most difficult moment you've faced in your business journey so far? Lots. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of one or two that you oh. – Because I can remember – like I've, I might have told this in the first podcast we did, but yeah. we had an office in National Press Club when we were first mm. starting many years ago. My wife Karen walked into the office, mm. and I think spouses have this unique ability. <laughs> Only happens a few times in a marriage where they just walk in and go – what mm-hmm. I was I had my feet crossed the hotel realm hadn't been built and I was staring out the window after a robust discussion with my accountant thinking you know how quickly could I learn busking skills absolutely it's all over yeah 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 uh, and often we we're able to survive and thrive over mm-hmm. time you have any moments looking back that were tough oh there's been a lot of those really yeah. it's, it, it's been this roller coaster but I think again that's the Rich texture of life. <laughs> this, I, I mean, I you know, I really can't be specific. You yeah. know, the, the, the idea is it's been, it's up, it's down, it's sideways. It's highlights yeah, so yeah. far. Things you can look back on were really memorable. Lots of them, lots of them. I can't again. So many to sort of, it's it's been an, a magical journey for for us. You know, I think we've sort of had these incredible successes. We've done some really meaningful work. I think. Again, the last 18 months to two years, we've been working on the Sir John Monash Centre. Yeah. That is, the, you know, the story of the Australian ex- experience on the Western Front. Yeah. And first of all, what, I mean, you could not get more uh, affecting, yeah. valuable experience than that. That was, you know, th- that was a really unique experience in, in a very different way because I think we're talking, we were telling a story I don't think is that well known. I don't think, you know, we talk about the Gallipoli mythology we talk about all those sorts of things but the experience on the western front was incredible yeah. i think it was a time when a very young country got to play on the world stage yeah. we had an influence in in the outcome of that war yeah. you know in our very small way 
but it's also a story of ordinary people. You know, it's it's not at all a glorification of war. It's actually the opposite. And I think it's ordinary men and women who volunteered to go across the world and do something, and that's pretty interesting. What are you most proud of with that work? I think that we get to tell that story to a global audience. I think that's really, really... Really nice, you know. I think that's the idea that we sort of get to open that door and sort of, you know, shove a loudspeaker out of it and, and sort of broadcast that idea. Why bother? Why tell those stories? Oh, look, I think there'd be many different points of view on that. It can get very political and it can get very personal. Yeah. I think what's fascinating about that is that it's not – and, again, I, I sort of disconnect the whole the defence force idea. I, I, I sort of look at it as these ordinary people doing extraordinary mm. things and – whether you think it's right or wrong, we're fighting for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. I'm, it's not about that. Mm. It's probably about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances yeah. doing the best they can. Yeah. And it's a very Australian story. It's a very much a story of Australians who got in there and did it. I, I don't really, more than anything, that those personal stories are just, they're really affecting. Mm. And the idea that it, it's something that is, thankfully, is resonating. I think with the development of what we did with that centre, is talking to a very young audience as well as an older audience. Mm. And they're actually reconnecting with that story, which I think is fascinating because Mm. I think it's a story about us, really. Yeah, it's it's such a poignant moment in Mm. world history. Mm. remember years ago hearing about the first time the Newfoundland Regiment went into action over there, not from Australia, obviously, but Mm -hmm. they lost, I think, 2,000 young men inside an hour. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the impact on the demography of Newfoundland, but yes. just kind of getting my head around that level of decimation and suffering, especially, you know, for us now as parents, our kids are a little bit younger, but what it must have been like. I mean, these guys are in the peak Absolutely. of their potential Absolutely. and energy and yes. capacity and to die horrifically um, in such awful circumstances. And I, you look at it and you, you, you just have to drive through every country town in, in Australia. And you'll see a memorial, and you'll mm. see a memorial of those boys who went from that town and that town and that family and those brothers and those neighbours. Never came back. Who never came back. And again, I don't, I don't sort of don't want to get into this, you no. know, the idea of the, the war and what it meant, but the idea that it did affect this country. And I think, again, a country that was new, was young, optimistic, strong, fresh, mm. The idea that we sort of we had a go on the world stage, mm. we had we we did something. I don't think we've ever had that opportunity again, you know, yeah. in that way, to sort of affect the history of the world in that in that sense. And we did in our little small part. I think it's crucial that mm. you're telling the stories. I think mm. they just we we can so easily lose the memory. Yeah, the memory, and I think we just have to sort of understand. And I think it is part of who we are and who we became. And I think we sort of just got to remember that. I think, you know, I don't want to mythologise things, but I think just understand where we came from, who we are. Yeah. Mm. And I think just the deep human lessons of it, like I remember recently I was reading Max Hastings' book, his history of World War Two, mm-hmm. All Hell Broke Loose, mm-hmm. and it's incredible reading. But, you know, we often think of the, you know, most people wouldn't even be aware of the siege of Stalingrad. But no. yeah. compared to um, 
some of the other sieges mm-hmm. on the Russian front, mm-hmm. like three million people oh, it's died insane. of starvation. Insane. insane. So I think telling these stories helps us in a very human way to think about our current choices and decisions. I, well, well, I would hope so, yeah. but it doesn't seem well, to be the no, case, John. Well, it's the old story of, <laughs> you know, if we don't learn from history, we're bound to repeat it. Yes, indeed. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the uh, Canberra Military History Podcast with my good friend. <laughs> no, I love this stuff. In fact, don't get me started because I just find this stuff so yeah. interesting. But um, So, we wanted to talk, just to wrap up, around mm-hmm. some of the key learnings. You've shared some interesting stuff in the notes about a, a C-list Hollywood producer <laughs> who taught you early on in your career, you know, when you arrive on set, the coffee should be brewed, not brewing. Indeed. And the other one was get the script, <laughs> which taught you lessons about organisation, preparation. Just Indeed. riff on that for a moment. I'd always just a very simple. It was one of those things. It was just a film seminar thing 25 years ago. Yeah. He was a C-list horror producer you know it was one of those things but there was a, three phrases that i think have stuck with me yeah, for yeah. my whole career this guy went on to uh, produce sharknado and stuff <laughs> like that yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in that accent you know that new york accent yeah. and he was uh, yeah that was a bit boston actually yeah. sorry you know there were three phrases one was brood not brewing yeah. coffee should be brood not brewing and obviously what he meant was have your shit together yeah. <laughs> be organized know your plan Obvious things, but I think these are things in the context were very, very mm. important. The other one was shut up and get the script, and I think that was really, really important because, again, with the creative industries, we tend to talk a lot about stuff. Yeah. To talk about, yeah, well, you know, it's going to be this and it's going to be that. We kind of we riff and we muse and we kind of get a bit loose with our time yeah. and our kind of structure. And I like the idea of sort of knowing where you're going, what you're doing, what's the plan. So how do you – I can just picture you in a meeting where somebody is, you know – maybe in flared trousers, is going off on a tangent. <laughs> how do you bring people back? Just from a communications point of view, how do you go, you know, you know, Bill, that's a great idea, but how do you do it? How do you- well, there's, there will be a great idea in there somewhere. There <laughs> okay. will. It's about harnessing that and yeah. sort of actually sort of shaping it and helping sort of move that along. I mean, I'm not being cynical. Please don't, yeah. please don't no, misconstrue that as being cynical. It's just this idea of, again, and it's all subjective from – my perspective, this idea of sort of sustainability, yeah. this idea of, you know, I could spend the next five years developing a, a script and that would be fine for some people. It wouldn't be fine for me. Yeah. I, I want to put parameters on. I want to keep it moving. I want momentum. I'm a shark, to be honest. I can't stand still. Really? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's just I have to have perpetual motion. And the idea is that sort of there's a continuity to that. It's a holistic continuity, if you yeah. understand what I'm saying. It's not just the sort of today till tomorrow. The idea is that there's sort of there is a pathway, there's a journey. There is. I'm not very good at the bullshit of the industry, if you put, put it that yeah. way. I'm really not very good at it. Another one he came up with, the classic quote that people talk about a lot, when you're at seminars or conferences and you meet someone, you say, how are you doing? What, what are you up to? Oh, I've got um, you know numerous projects in various stages of development, yeah, yeah. which means you're you're doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of you're busking. Yeah, you know this idea of just having some momentum. But again, please, Jonathan, this is all purely. So I'm not, not preaching to anyone in regards to how they should do things, no. but it's just a perspective of mine. So we had Richard Watkins last week, who from Bent spoke, mm-hmm. and he really revealed a kind of fanatical attention to detail. Like, and I was curious because mm-hmm. I didn't know much about brewing. Mm-hmm. No, plenty about drinking, but not the brewing part. He was like, you know, the vats have to be meticulously yes, clean. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So I offered to help drain them. Though. So he's like, <laughs> he's just totally. So with all this kind of pragmatism that you have and mm-hmm. the kind of creativity and commerce, 
how do you deal with attention to detail? Like, are you the guy there going, we we're going to shoot that again 400 times? Or how do you manage attention to detail? Well, it depends on what capacity. Yeah. I'm very blessed again to work with a lot of people that are very, very good at good what, what they, they do, do yeah. and very, very focused on those sorts of issues. Yeah. In Canberra now, we've got a staff of close to 50, wow. you know, and then we've got Sydney and Brisbane, Brisbane. as well. Yep. So, and then, you know, umpteen amount of freelancers and contractors that we bring in. So the idea is you can't be that guy anymore. Yeah. You can't sort of walk around and tick every box. You have to have faith in the people who work with you. And I'm very blessed to have a lot of people that actually do have that attention to detail. I think that's important. So I don't think it can be rubbish. I don't. Well, ultimately, what do you bring then? What's the unique thing that you bring? I hope an overview. I hope yeah. a creative overview. I can sort of help direct things. I can help sort of shape things. I can give projects momentum. I can give them. I can mentor. I can do lot. You know, again, this is what I love. I love yeah. watching young practitioners come up. Yeah. You know, giving them opportunities to. T- it's a bit out of your depth, but let's go for it, you know, and helping them through that rather than, here you go, swim. You know, the idea of actually seeing that sort of come to fruition, that that, that to me is really fascinating. Two, two ways to look at this. If you didn't do this or in 30-odd years' time, whatever, when you retire to your Tuscan villa, <laughs> what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? Oh, I don't think I could retire. That's really? the problem. That's I really don't. Yeah. I really don't. I'm not... I mean, you know, driven's the wrong word. I'm just engaged. Yeah. And, and I think I've always been engaged. Yeah. And, and I think I'm not very good at sitting my ass. Let's yeah. put it that way. <laughs> so, what are you like at home? You've got a seven-year-old daughter. Yes. What are the weekends like for you? Busy. Yeah. Busy. Busy. And and again, I, I think we were talking about it earlier. You know, yeah. the idea of spending time with them is just fantastic. Yeah. The, this idea of, for me as well with her, it's this. She's sort of a little creative being. She doesn't quite know how to articulate herself. Yeah. But you know, this idea of the, the there's endless possibilities. Why not? Why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? You know, to me, that's... Have you already started saying to her, but there is a budget. There is a budget. budget. (laughs) That's right. Where's the script? (laughs) Get the script. I've told you. No, but, you know, this idea of being, again, we talked about mindfulness earlier. You know, this idea of sort of being in that that space is is energising, to be honest. What do you most enjoy about being a father? Unconditional love from her. Yeah. There's no questions. Yeah. It's it's a kind of different relationship that you have to most adults. And uh, it's simple. It's simple and it's beautiful. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I love about it. It's nice to have one place in our lives where we can just walk in the door and just there's no expectation of performance or excellence. Or Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good point, Jonathan. <laughs> My nine-year-old son has just got an obsession at the moment with beatings. and Because I, I, I had a background in boys' education and it's true. They hit a stage where they like to wrestle and stuff. So now mm-hmm. it's like... Dad, let's have a beating. It's just, <laughs> so you're down, so right? It's just like, I'm not, yeah, I'm just down, getting destroyed with pillows. How's your back? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah I'm, I'm, still, I'm still walking. Yes. My daughter loves wrestling, so we go to the wrestling every six weeks. Do you Yes, really? yes. Where do they have that? Uh, it's at the Belconnen Community Centre, and then they also have it at, in Tuggeranong. So we go and watch She goes the, to watch wrestling? Yeah, it's like a sort of local WWE Really? Contest is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, so good. Okay. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show it. notes because yeah. I so want to see that. We have to come back and, yeah, yeah. and wrestle for at least two or three days after oh, each wow. one. Yeah, so. I love it. <laughs> so, the last thing we often ask if you could imagine you walk on stage at a, at a key event, maybe the first night at Khan or something, or there's a, <laughs> we'll put it this way there's a hundred or so young business owners, creative types, people starting out. It doesn't have to be specific to the creative production industry, but mm-hmm. what three pieces of advice would you give to people starting out in business because you have taken a creative instinct but mm-hmm. you've also had a business instinct and they're mm-hmm. relatively rare that they 
survive successfully long term. So give us the three key things you think business owners and listeners should be thinking about in terms of building successful businesses. And are you going to say this is just your take? And that's fine. <laughs> but that's why you're here because you've, you've got some runs on the board and you've built a great business. So what um, three things? Listen. Yep. First thing is listen. Listen to the people who give you advice, who mentor you, who, who are going to help steer your journey. I think it's really, really important. I think that is key to it. Again, we were talking earlier about the sort of arrogance of youth and, you know, being sort of all gung-ho and go, 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 go. But I think we were very privileged to have a lot of people spend a lot of time with us. The advice was just solid gold, to be honest, every time. And we listened, you know, and I think that's really sort of part of that. I think you, can, you think you have all the answers, you don't. You don't. My brother used to say there's no such thing as a good young lawyer. <laughs> When he said that when he was a young lawyer. Can I use that? Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and, he, and he, you, know, you know who taught him that was the former mm. Supreme Court judge. Mm. Um, I remember his name, he's died, but it was at Malison's mm -hmm. 25 years ago. And the yes, judge yeah, said yeah. to him, always remember there's no such thing as a good young lawyer. Yeah. That's why I get scared. And I'm not going to say which party it is, but even in Canberra, there's mm. some incredibly young people going for pre-selection, like mm -hmm. 2021. And friends, yeah. sorry, I'm sure there could be some outliers, yeah. but sometimes you've got to be you got to have had a few edges knocked off, yes, you know. Yeah. So listen to the key people, to mentors. Mm -hmm. Number two. Love what you're doing. Love it. If you don't, don't do it. I think because it's going to be hard. It's so how do people find that? Because that's exactly what Richard Watkins said. That was yeah. his number two last yeah. week. Yeah. So did you always know that? How do people find that? I think I had a pretty good inkling. It's what I wanted to do. But as you do it, you'll know pretty quick if you like it or not. Yeah. And I think work that out very quickly. And if you don't like it, get out. Yeah. Do something else, honestly, because it's going to take a lot of energy. It's going to affect you physically, mentally, yeah. financially. Yeah. It's going to do all those things too. So be prepared. And if you don't love it, well, and you need those things. It's like that great line, you can't pay me enough to hate my life. Yeah, absolutely. I love that, I love that Absolutely. <laughs> Because as a speaker, people are like, oh, we, we, when you come and speak at this event, you, you, what, what's your, whatever it costs, no. no, you can't pay me enough to no, hate no. traveling to, yes. you know, whatever. Absolutely. So listen to the mentors, listen to the people guiding your journey, love mm. what you do mm. for the reasons you've shared. Mm. Number three? Share what you've learned. Contribution. Yep. Give back. I think that's really, really important. I think it's part of your, it should be part of your remit. It should be, it should be expected of you. But a lot of people don't do that. Why mm. Why do it? I think people get scared. I think if people get scared about sort of people cutting their grass or the next phase through, whatever it is, I think it's about evolution. It's about evolution of what we do. How do we get better? How do we get better? How do we get better at, you know, being real estate agents? Or how do we get better at being mechanics? How do we, we do that by sharing knowledge. Yeah. And I think you need to share it. I think you need to sort of, it's bookend of listen yeah. then share. So Listen, have your journey and share. Yeah. Receive from the mentors early mm. in the game and mm. then that's what Glenn Keyes was about too, mm. the contribution factor. So. Yeah, very important, I think. So to finish, what's the future hold for you guys? Where do you want to see this go? Just keep growing into more diverse, interesting work? I think we were talking earlier about the idea of the sort of fragmentation of the business and, yeah. and how the industry's going. I think it's kind of strangely frightening but strangely incredibly exciting. Uh, chaos theory. To, to be honest, you know. <laughs> And I think to see what happens in the next five years, I think the next five years is going to be fascinating, yeah. honestly. And um, In what way? What's coming down the line? Well, I think in the way that the industry is going to change. I think that the shift in 
what the mechanisms are, how we sort of consume media, how we do all that, I think is absolutely fascinating. I think what's happening in things like augmented reality, fascinating stuff. Yeah. The way we tell stories is shifting slightly, which is really, really interesting. I think there is an opportunity there to sort of evolve what we do in a very interesting way. Yeah. So let, let me ask you on that, just to add some final value for listeners is for business owners, one of the, I mean, one of the things is being able to get your story out, right? Mm. And there's all these tools where once you had two or three platforms, which are enormously expensive, high barriers to entry, yes. now they're in your hand and they're yes. free. Yes. We interviewed earlier today Sanjay, who's got a, you know, opened a brilliant restaurant and I love what he's doing mm. and I'm going to, I'm actually going there for dinner at 530. <laughs> I'm going to be looking forward to it. They've got a great business. I love what they're doing, mm. but they need to get that story out, and they're doing it. Yeah. But for any business people listening, what do you, what do you think are some of the key elements to getting their story out? That's really hard for me to say because I'm a terrible self publicist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm the quiet one in the business. You're the quiet one. What are the elements? What do people need to think about to go from, I like my business, gee, I hope somebody buys something today, to, yes. you know what, this is a great business and I yeah. want to tell people about it. Yes, Brookhead, I don't know, whatever. It depends on what sort of industry you're yeah. in, how you can sort of talk to people about it. But look, I think if you're excited about your business and yeah. I think you talk to people, they're going to be excited about yeah, your business. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, um, again, that comes back to that passion thing. Yeah. I think that's the number one kind of driver. Yeah, people know pretty quickly if you're into what you do. Yeah, and uh, you know that's a good advertisement. And I think the other one that's come through in recent weeks has just been having a really good product helps. You know? Yes, absolutely. Like having Ben Spoke come in, <laughs> and they brought samples. <laughs> God bless you, Richard Watkins. Long may you flourish. Um, but yeah, often we we said last week that if you've got a crap product, you. You've got nowhere to hide no. sooner or later. No, no, you'll be you'll be found out pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, so I think. Well, my friend Sergio, thank you so much for making time. I've enjoyed this. We've covered yeah. metaphysics, Greek philosophy, uh, war history, <laughs> uh, parenting. So, people, you got value for money today. We're going to have Wild Bear's links in the show notes. So, if you're yeah. listening to this in uh, bigger private enterprise government, yeah. please come and check out their website. They've been around long enough to have many runs on the board, yeah. and they know what they're doing, and they can be trusted to tell your story too. So, please check them out. So that's it from us this week. Serge U, thanks so much for coming in. Jonathan, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been good fun. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Hey guys, Jonathan once again, did you enjoy that one? How good was that, huh? It was uh, just a great pleasure to, to have that time with Serge. You know, one of the great things about this podcast is just meeting so many interesting people and I just think he shared so much insight and wisdom with us. You know, what I do is I, I do these recordings and then often I'll just be thinking about them for days, just, just insights, it kind of builds up. So Serge, if you're hearing this again, my friend, thank you so much for making time for us out of your schedule. Uh, people wouldn't know, but it was actually the first day of his uh, of his break. He's uh, he was on holidays and made time just to sneak in and, and, and share it with us. So we're really grateful for your time, my friend, and thanks for sharing with us. So everybody, I hope you got a lot out of that. I hope you can share it with people. I hope you've subscribed. I want you to go to the show notes and maybe check out Wild Bear. Look at what they do. You know, if you need help in your business or in government with, with building a story, building a narrative, creating content, then you really want to check these guys out. So go to the show notes, check them out on social, check out their website and find out how Wild Bear can bring some value to your business or government department. That's it, my friends. I'm uh, out of the studio now. I hope you've enjoyed this one. I love doing these. Reach out to me if you want. Uh, if there's any particular guests you'd like us to try and get on the show. But for now, 
Thanks so much to Serge and the guys at Wild Bear. Thank you for sharing your time with us on the Canberra Business Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have another podcast for you next week.